Hey, y'all. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am so, and I know Nick is too, like very thrilled to see all of these faces and to see the names on the chat list and in the participants guide. Um, we're excited about this series and excited about um, doing the things that it takes to dismantle oppression and racism within ourselves so that we can move that forward into our lives um, as a spiritual practice. And so I know that Maddie is going to start us off with a bit of music and then Nick and I are going to get started. I know they're watching, ancestors watching. I know they're watching, I know, I know. I know they're watching, ancestors watching. I know they're watching, I know, I know. I know they're watching, ancestors watching. I know they're watching, I know, I know. I know they're watching, ancestors watching. I know they're watching, I know, I know. I know that you're watching and sisters watching. I know that you're watching. I know that you're watching and sisters watching. I know that you're watching. I know that you're watching and sisters watching. I know that you're watching. I know that you're watching and sisters watching. I know that you're watching. I know that you're watching and sisters watching. I know that you're watching. I know that you're watching and sisters watching. I know that you're watching. I know that you're Thanks, Maddie. Um, that is a chant that is a part of the playlist. Um, about Joyous Rebellion from the Movement for Black Lives. And um, with us moving forward into this work, it makes me emotional um, listening to that. And um, it centers me in the work that I do. And so Abhishek talks about um, and shared that I'm in a lot of different spaces around anti-racism in Kansas City, in our state and nationally. And I am because my very life depends on it. The life of my um, family the life of my niece and my nephew, the lives of so many other people that look like me absolutely depend upon it. And so um, I will um, introduce Nick into sharing about um, this series more in depth. And I would like for everyone to know that this is something that we planned on doing long before um, COVID-19 and very long before the crisis, the endemic of uh, systemic and structural racism um, blew up in our face with um, the deaths of the spring, the spring of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, and George Floyd, and countless others, you all, that we could name. Um, and so, Nick, please move us forward. Yeah, thank you, Cecilia. <clears throat> yeah, and I, I would also say that, that um, I, I, like Cecilia, care deeply about this work and have made a, a commitment to um, dismantling racism within myself, uh, to interrupting it um, within myself, to interrupting it when I see it with family and friends, and to interrupt it and dismantle it in any system that I have any sort of sphere of influence over. Um, and, and additionally, just recognizing it's a systemic thing, um, I'm also committed to dismantling that because I recognize that, that racism has damaged me. Um, 
with the kinds of socialization that teaches me to fear people who don't look like me. Um, uh, and with the kind of, um, in a kind of environment that essentially narrows my world, uh, where, you know, until I engage in this work, I largely just hung out with other white folks, read uh, white authors, hung out in predominantly white spaces. And um, I recognize that it teaches me to become numb to the pain of black and brown bodies. And I recognize that that is a dehumanizing thing that actually hurts me. And so I'm, I'm very committed to doing this work and I'm, I'm very um, glad that we're engaged in this series. So back in January and February, we were mapping out the different topics that we wanted to discuss at our gatherings. And the idea of an anti, doing a series on an anti-racist spirituality came up. Um, as you've already heard, like as a church, we're committed to becoming act actively anti-racist and we're committed to help form people who are both contemplative and active in doing justice work. So a uh, little bit of history. Back in 2018, we received a grant that helped us launch an anti-racism training business. Um, and since then, we have seen the power of multi-racial multi organizing and friendship. Uh, folks who are involved in both the leadership of the Open Table as well as our anti-racism trainer cohort thought it would be great if we could explore the connections between anti-racism principles and Christian mysticism. So uh, basically over the next eight gatherings, we're going to be dis discussing different characteristics of white supremacy culture and how Christian mysticism, anti-racism principles and embodied practices can serve as antidotes to the ways that racism and anti-blackness can show up within each of us. Uh, so our, our hope is that throughout the series, you'll be able to develop critical skills, uh, rituals and practices that will aid our entire community in being committed to the dismantling of white supremacy culture, while also creating a new anti-racist culture, a culture that isn't dependent upon the oppression, marginalization and exclusion of black and brown bodies. So that, that's our hope for this series. And folks of color, my other black indigenous and brown friends and other folks of color, please don't think that it's only white people that have to dismantle that within themselves. Because I guarantee you, because of the ways in which we have been socialized, the ways in which we have been taught to be complacent and compliant in the system means that we support it too. We support it with our actions. We support it with um, our ways in which we um, deal with ourselves and deal with each other and deal with white folks, especially. And so this is something for all of us. Um, and so we're really excited about it. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Nick. So one of the yeah. things that we recognize that we need to do as we are um, contemplating structural and systemic racism, we have to define it. Many ways, we, when we are um, having conversations, especially in our anti-racism cohort, especially in our conversations as folks who are actively trying to be anti-racist, we recognize that folks have a million and one different def definitions of racism. And so we think it's very important for us to be able to 
come to a definition that we can utilize in the series. Um, and hopefully it's a definition that you will agree with beyond the series, but at least commit to agreeing with in the series so that we can really ground ourselves in um, what it means to be anti-racist so that we can look at what is the spirituality of anti-racism. And so one of the things that we would like to explore together is what is racism? What is um, the definition of this as it affects us in everyday living. Um, and so we'd like to throw that out and people can throw their answers in the chat um, of what they believe racism to be. Um, is it an act? Is it meanness? Is it hatred? Is it all the different things that come to mind? What are the words? What are the characteristics? What's the definition that comes to mind when you're thinking about racism? On your mark? Get set, go. We're looking in the chat. <laughs> Someone has said implicit bias. Superiority. Um, redlining, abuse of power. Racial prejudice plus power. Discrimination combined with societal systems. Um, not knowing the unknown fear. The belief that I am superior, so I'm assuming that person or superior or inferior based on race. Beliefs, acts against others, judging. Manifestation of power over consciously embedded in all levels of our society, both interpersonal, institutional, and cultural. Generational destruction of a people. Some point put a sin. Systemic and calculated attempt to target another race. Benefiting or not benefiting from systems based on race. Believing that others should be like them, to be like them, the minority racial group. Power, generational, intergenerational, destruction of power, disenfranchisement and violence against people of color that benefits white people, but also dehumanizes white people. That one was good. So all of these are good. All of these are really good. And all of these sometimes skirt around the issues of how racism plays in our society. So Nick is going to share with us the definition of racism that we at the open table utilize to center us in all of our work. Mm -hmm. So in this, what is racism? These are the different things that we came up that in the chat came out. Implicit bias, superiority, redlining, abuse of power, racial prejudice, power, discrimination, fear, systemic, it's embedded, judging, exclusion, personal, apathy to act, unconscious, fear of the other, benefiting from systems based on race. So even in this, we can start to see, even in our list, we can start to see how some more align with others and how some don't. And so one of the things that we would like for us to point out and be able to look at when we are 
um, defining racism and how racism plays out in our society is to recognize that there's a difference between implicit bias or personal things that happen or fear or um, fear of the other, unconscious ways in which we move, apathy to act, and things that are deeply embedded in systems and structures that affect people's daily lives. And so Nick is going to talk with, them, with us about that as we move forward. Yeah, thank you, Cecilia. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so like, like Cecilia was saying, it, it is really, we do believe it's really important for us to be operating off the same definition. Um, back when all of us uh, in 2018 were receiving our own anti-racism training as we were training to become anti-racism trainers, um, Paku, her, who was uh, the lead trainer, gave an illustration that I thought was very helpful. And what she said is if folks, if someone shows up and you have some sort of illness and, and you show up to a hospital and a whole team of doctors are, are looking at you, if those doctors cannot agree on what the problem is, uh, then they're probably not gonna be very likely to get to a cure. So um, that's the reason why we want to make sure we're defining our terms. Um, so right here, uh, this, this is our definition, race prejudice plus the misuse and abuse of systemic and institutional power equals racism. So let, let's unpack it just for a second then. Racism, uh, what, what, we're, what we're not saying is that racism is not just individual bigotry or prejudice. Uh, racism is actually more than individual bigotry or prejudice. And the way it becomes racism racial prejudice becomes racism when it's also combined with the power of systems and institutions. So when the negative racial prejudice of a whole group of people uh, has the power of systems and institutions behind it, that's when it becomes racism. And there, um, I was reading not too terribly long ago, a book by James Cone called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And in it, there's a chapter where there's a prominent white theologian and James Baldwin are having a bit of a debate. And there was a quote that James Baldwin said in response to this theologian that I think illustrates this sentiment perfectly. And it goes something like this. It says, I don't care if you like me, is what James Baldwin is saying. I don't care if you like me. Uh, I don't care if we're friends necessarily. What I care about is that you have the power to keep me from a job that you have the power to keep me from proper housing, that you have the power to take my children away. And so what is James Baldwin saying? Uh, what, what he's saying is that the American systems were all built on racism, anti-blackness and white supremacy. And uh, these systems are still operating today um, as we look at things like the achievement gap in education or the disparities in things like healthcare, housing or employment, you know, you name it. The outcomes are similar. So generally speaking, white folks have the best outcomes while black folks have the worst with indigenous folks and other non-black people of color falling somewhere in between, generally speaking. So what Baldwin is speaking to is actually like an issue of power. So we have this definition here. <clears throat> and we see that in this definition that racism operates at a systemic level, it's, it's, it's very pervasive. It's literally the water that we swim in. And, and because it's so pervasive and systemic, it ends up recreating itself over and over and over again. 
Denise Anderson, um, a, a colleague of mine, she's, she's the PCUSA's Director of Racial Equity and Women's Intercultural Ministries. Um, she, she said it well when speaking to how racism perpetuates itself. And so the way she talked about it was talking about socialization. And she says that socialization is when human differences are assigned meaning and then a society is designed to then reinforce those meanings. So racism under our definition gets reinforced over and over again because the negative meaning that gets assigned to BIPOC folks gets reinforced by society's politicians, bureaucrats, industry leaders, and every other system you can think of. So uh, I'm gonna pass it back to Cecilia uh, as we take a moment and look at some of the ways that whiteness has actually become normative and universalized, which has also served to perpetuate negative racial prejudice that then gets reinforced by systems and institutions. Cecilia? Thanks, Nick. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So we're going to look at you all, ways in which we at the Open Table um, believe there, that we have been really socialized into upholding um, white supremacy cultural standards that benefit white folks. Um, and this often comes as a surprise to many because white people are not even aware of them having a culture that is whiteness. When oftentimes in anti-racism trainings and you ask people about their culture, folks of color are able to really move into things that they like about being themselves. Whereas um, when white folks are asked those types of questions, it comes, it circles back almost 99.9% .9 of the time to ways in which they have been able to attain power. And so, um, and that often is a very painful experience of white people going through that because they don't recognize it until that time. So Tima Okun, along with a gentleman by the name of Kenneth Jones, really um, came up with white supremacy cultural characteristics um, and standards that we utilize in order to help uphold these systems that um, lift up white folks and really make everyone else um, trotted upon and oppressed. And so one of the first ones that Timo Kuhn talks about is perfect perfectionism. Perfectionism is that everything has to um, be done in a certain type of way and it's according to whiteness. Um, a sense of urgency in time. Time is very much a European construct. You go to other parts of the world and you recognize, oh, everyone doesn't run on a European time in the ways that we do in cultures that are very white. Um, defensiveness, a way in which um, white people can stop uh, any questions about race or other things that might make them have to um, think more clearly about being more broad and more open. Quantity over quality, more, more, more. Um, we see that in the United States um, and we see it playing out in capitalistic types of ways and ways in which we live that. Worship of the written word. Um, as a person who is a wordsmith and as a person who loves, loves word, this is one that I do. Um, it's not only the worship of the written word, but it's also um, the letters that go behind people's names. It is a credentializing type of way in which we credential people. Only one right way. So um, if we think about 
um, our society, if we think about what we consider to be the epitome, um, I would think in most people's minds, it would be a white man and a white woman and their white children that we think about in that only one right way, that is the American way. When it comes to paternalism, it is that, oh, poor you, poor you, we are better, we know more, and so other folks aren't able to take care of themselves. Paternalism was a great defense for, for um, chattel slavery in the Americas, that Black people, enslaved Africans, and Native Americans did not know how to take care of themselves, and so our great white fathers could do that for us. Either or thinking, so it's only, it's really close to only one right way, so if it's not this way, if it's not very um, couched in a white way of being, then it has to be wrong because it's not that. Um, power hoarding, we can see this in our society very much. It's a belief, it's a kind of belief that there is scarcity. And so only a few people can have that power. In our world, it's only about 1% um, that holds most of the, the wealth in our country. Um, and they happen to be white men. Fear of open conflict. So when we see things like Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper and a way in which when someone is saying, please put your dog on a leash because that is the rule here. The fear of open conflict will then drive one to do things in which Amy Cooper did. Individualism. Um, most communities of culture, of color, excuse me, have moved around a community aspect. White supremacy culture thinks about a rugged individualism, a rugged way in which we can be objective and think of things in only one way. Um, I'm the only one. Um, exceptionalism, the exceptional American, I think, if we think about I'm the only one. Progress is bigger and more westward expansion. We learned all about it in, in eighth grade history class of how we expanded and moved forward. What they didn't tell us is whose lands we were taking when we did that. Objectivity, um, oh, things to not take things personally, right? To be objective about it because it is something that is not affecting um, those in power. And I think one of the worst things and one of the things that we're gonna talk about today is this right to comfort, a right to comfort and to be absent of tension, a right to comfort and to be able to feel good and feel okay about things as opposed to um, the d unrest that Emily talked about in her litany and the prayer that we had at the beginning of our session today, that there's a healthy unrest that we should all have. And I think if we are being honest with ourselves, if we look at these 13, I believe it could be 20. Um, we can all have some that we participate in um, more extensively than others, that we recognize that all of us have operated in this as a cultural system, as a norm um, here in the United States. Um, and I would say, globally, that we, that it ha this has had such impact that there are global ways of being that are about the superiority of white folks and the inferiority of everyone else. Mm -hmm. The thing that we would like everyone to consider is that, you know, this hurts everyone, right? Um, it, these are responses to trauma. They are responses to ways in which we have bought into um, not believing in humanity, not believing into 
um, beloved community. And we'd like to invite everyone to think about ways in which we can interrupt these um, characteristics so that we can move together, forward together. Go ahead, Nick. Were you going to say something? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That, that's great. So we, we were going to put folks into breakout rooms at this point. And yeah. Cecilia, I didn't know if you had some questions that you wanted folks to consider. Um, I'd like for Beyond people to consider mm -hmm, one of these characteristics um, and to be able to see how they play those out. I'd also like for folks to um, ask and be willing to discuss with their group members if there is some is there something that was there a new learning for them um around racism and the definition of racism and how white supremacy culture helps to support the definition of racism and so um i think that that will be enough i want us to have enough time to kind of move into our conversations deeply so we're going to break you out into the same breakout rooms that you were in before with your same community. Um, and we are going to invite you also to have the courage to be vulnerable, have the courage to um, move away from the fear of open conflict, to have the courage to let go of defensiveness, to have the courage to be, um, to be uncomfortable so that we can really start to interrupt these things within ourselves and we can practice it in our groups, in our breakout rooms. I think we are ready. So um, thank you all for that. We want to kind of get some responses about how it was to be in breakout with one another with this and um, we can share the conversation that Nick and I had. We were intentionally not put into breakout rooms so that Maddie did not have to reorganize that as people come in and come out. Um, and it also gives us time to kind of check in with one another. Um, we recognize how much people do not like breakouts typically and how we will see our numbers move and, and shift around when it's time to go to breakout. So what stood out for people? Put it, Please put it in the chat of things that you feel comfortable with. I love breakouts too, Jeremy, but not everybody does. Um, I love them too, Kathy. Uh, things that came out, was there a new finding that you had about racism or the definition of racism or was there a new um, aha moment that um, came out for you in looking at the white supremacy cultural standards or characteristics? Someone said they had so much in common, which is great. Someone said breakouts helped me to build relationship, connection, accountability. Very, very important. The idea of rugged individualism is a characteristic that I find myself bumping up against is what someone said from Facebook. Um, Nick and I were talking about that. Is there someone you're ready to talk? Well, right as hey, we were, hi. <laughs> so good to see you on here. Um, right as we were, getting ready to pop out. Um, Scott uh, actually asked us, we, you know, we discussed some of the white supremacy um, uh, characteristics and he asked us, how is that playing out as you're dealing with recognizing those within yourself? How is that playing out within your spirituality um, and your, and your practice? And um, Caitlin had said, had just, finished saying and we had like 10 seconds left that 
um, she's a CNA and that she was working on or that she shows a good deal of compassion. And sometimes she notices that other people aren't necessarily doing that. And so what we were kind of ending with was that idea that just recently as Cecilia, you know, I've been moving through this whole, whole process of really trying to tie that into my spirituality and looking at like the compassion that led, you know, Jesus or prophets or whoever, you know, but certainly in, in my life, um, Jesus throughout his life. And it was never a, um, white savior, you know, for somebody that's supposedly the white savior, he didn't portray the white savior, um, tongue in cheek there, of course. Um, and so as I'm looking at my spirituality, I'm looking at, he must have tapped into that all of the time during his prayers. And so trying to make sure that that is part of the centralized meditation and prayers that I'm doing, um, to, to really make sure that compassion is leading and not this need for some sort of response. Sorry, long-winded to get to where I was trying to get, but sometimes I write a lot better than I speak. Okay, okay. thanks, Courtney. Yeah. Um, I think Courtney brings up a great thing if we want to talk about white supremacy cultural standards, this myth that Jesus was white. Yes. Like <laughs> This myth that Jesus could have in any type of way been blonde-haired and blue-eyed. Right. And so the I just... in which Jesus is portrayed um, in all types of ways and all types of um, iconic ways as being a blonde haired, blue eyed white man, which is impossible. <laughs> so anyone else? I'll go. I, I realized as you were reading off all those things, I didn't realize how little I know about black culture because I didn't realize that all of those things were linked into white culture and I guess I just didn't realize the different ideas that are out there and it was, it was very interesting and it was very good to know. So thank you for sharing and enlightening me on what I didn't know. It we is talked the, it's the water in which we swim. And so if, um, for those of us who are BIPOC folks that's black indigenous and other people of color have been able to um, master those and to move into meritocracy um, we do them too. And so it becomes a way in which people have normed to um, white cultural standards and don't even recognize them. One of um, my friends that's on Facebook put in that um, rugged individualism is one in which um, he participates um, as a black man. And I think that that is those of us who have been exceptional, those of us who have been able to move through certain cracks, those of us who have been able to succeed, succeed beyond, um, in spite of, we might want to do that. Um, and we can see that playing out even as we're in a pandemic. I was sharing with Nick that um, I was out and about today in Hy-Vee and there may have been three people out of a hundred in there with masks on and how we are being, we are, more willing to move in individual ways than in ways as community. So anyone else, one more before we move back together. So we okay. were talking about the fear of open conflict and talking about interrupting racism and whether it's easy to do that with someone you know or someone you don't know. And how does that change the dynamic? It was a, it was a good talk. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. 
Um, I wonder what that must feel like for, I think it's hard, it's hard anytime. I think it is a muscle, it's a courage muscle that once the more that you utilize it, the less um, it feels as fearful. Um, but I wonder what that must feel like for people. It is not a luxury at this this space in my life that I feel like that I can um, I can choose. So um, what I may have to choose is the strategy in which I speak to people about racism. And I'm clear about the fact that I don't have the type of choice right now that lets me be quiet and be silent. I've been silent enough around that. Yep. So uh, there said someone said that there was someone that had their hand up that wanted to speak. Is there one more? So it was me. I had my hand up. This is Kathy. Well, okay. we talked about the conflict of, you know, open conversation too. And I had said that I'm having more conversations and calling people out, especially family. <laughs> and, but I know that I also have to remember that I can't make them wrong because conversation won't ever happen if I shame and blame, so. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Absolutely. Um, one of the character, the, one of the ways in which we have seen um, Robin D'Angelo um, do that um, is she invites people into a different way of thinking, invites people into a different, can they imagine that something other than what they believe can also be true? Um, and then that allows people to kind of wrestle with those things, right? Um, one of the things how fear of open conflict shows up for me is that um, I used to would be, I was much more comfortable being the silent black girl than the angry black woman. And um, I've gotten to the point now that I recognize that most of the world will perceive me to be the angry black woman anyway. And so um, why not go ahead and utilize my voice and utilize my power. And so um, I think that we are all caught in these ways in which these things really um, play out with us and that it is our responsibility as those who want to move to be anti-racist um, or not oppressed is to interrupt these things as we start to notice them as much as possible. Yeah, and, and before we move on, we want to make sure that we give some uh, space for uh, any BIPOC folks who are on the call that would like to make uh, a comment about like what what uh, was happening in their breakout room. We just want to make sure we make space for that before we move on. Thanks, Nick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would just want to echo what um, Cecilia shared about the white supremacy cultural characteristics that as I read that list, I realized that those were all the ways that I can excel in the suburbs. Um, it's one of the ways that I can get ahead as a black man living in a predominantly white uh, community and neighborhood and even in my job, um, that punctuality and um, rugged individualism and looking out for number one and these things that they seem to portray my soul. I feel like it's hard for me to do those things um, Maybe if I was listening to myself, I wouldn't make that choice, but to excel and to forge ahead, it seems like those are the characteristics I have to put on or I've chosen to put on. So that list was very affecting and it's gonna stick with me a lot. Hi. Thanks, Garrett. Oh, hi, how are you? Oh, hi. hi, how are you? Um, yes, I, 
I, I suppose what I want to say is that list just resonated so uh, deeply because it's everything I seem to rail against throughout my life as an academic. And, and I was always, I even said to my group, I was, I'm realizing how I was always fighting that and putting and sort of pushing uh, white folks into corners because I could. And, 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 and I was shrewd enough. I realized it was, it was something very shrewd about how I could place them in a corner and how I, we could have this really wasn't a conversation. It was me pushing them to answer one simple question about themselves. And, um, but that was a lot of work. Yeah. I realized how much work that was for 18 years of continually doing that, but I needed to hold my ground as well, but to fight against this constantly um, wore me out. Retirement was a good thing. <laughs> so I can fight another way. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Stephanie, thank you. It, the emotional labor of, um, um, of doing this type of work as for our own liberation and our own freedom as BIPOC people, you all is a job in a, inside of a job, inside of a job. So James Baldwin, um, Nick quoted James Baldwin earlier, James Baldwin says to be a conscious black person is to be in some type of rage all the time of managing the rage, managing the microaggression, managing um, the ex explicit as well as implicit bias, as well as trying to uphold the white supremacy cultural constructs so that we can move forward and get ahead. Um, and so just so we know that. Yep. Thank you. And I think that implicates us white folks too, right? Because it's, it, shouldn't be, uh, it shouldn't fall on folks like Stephanie to consistently have to push back against that stuff, which is why like in the wake of Ferguson, um, that, that's why showing up for racial justice was formed. Uh, and there, there's a local chapter here in Kansas City is basically a bunch of white folks descended upon Ferguson and was exhibiting all of these characteristics, uh, questioning black leadership, uh, showing up in ways where it's like, no, my way is the right way. And so in the wake of that, uh, black folks got together and was like, hey, can you all like figure your stuff out? Uh, so whenever we need you to show up, you can show up in a better way. Um, and so that, that gave birth to, to showing up for racial justice nationally. Uh, and so it's up to, it's, it's up to us uh, white folks to make sure that we are also doing the work of dismantling this stuff and calling it out Be because it is uh, a lot of those characteristics. If you, if you look back to them, a lot of it is about power and a lot of it is about control. And, and um, the more we can dismantle that and interrupt ways, those things that that shows up in our lives, um, it, it's, things will start to shift and that it's going to, it'll be good. It'll be good. And finally, um, it'll actually rehumanize all of us in the process. So, um, I, so we're also paying attention to time. We're clearly going to roll over time by maybe a cool 20 minutes, just, just FYI. Um, but we wanted to um, shift gears and start uh, speaking a little bit to mysticism. And then we'll talk a little bit about the overlap because this is just our introductory time. But the, the, what, the way our series is organized is over the next seven gatherings beyond this, we're actually going to be looking at various aspects of 
the white supremacy culture document by Tima Okun, and uh, we'll be digging in a little bit deeper. So this is just a broad overview. Know that we're not going anywhere. Like this is what we're rolling through for the next seven weeks. So, you know, you all, when we hear the word mysticism often, I think that people feel like that that is so far outside of themselves. When we would like for us to explore how we all, everyone on this call has probably experienced um, uh, an encounter with the divine. Now, whether we were too distracted to recognize that we have grown up, I think we all, all of us have experienced the divine as children um, in the ways in which we engage with one another because we're open, we're there, we're ready, we're present um, as children in ways that shifts as we um, move into adulthood. And so what we would definitely like to explore is the fact that we have all experienced mysticism, that mysticism is basically a personal encounter with the divine. Christian mysticism is marked by um, devotion. It is marked by um, tour, tools and environment, um, monastic life, monastic way of being, and so that you can experience the divine however you um, incorporate the divine in your life. Um, and you have that experience with the divine. So for me, when I think about my experience with God, I find her to be um, gracious. I find her to be willing to talk if I'm willing to listen. I find her to be ever present with me. I find that um, if she, if I feel like that she has moved away, that it is really I who have moved away. It is not God who has moved away. And so I intentionally um conceptualize god as me um because it says that we are created in god's image and surely god is big enough for god's image to be me as well and so when we are thinking about those types of ways of contemplation meditation um prayer ways in which we move in relationship with divine um we'd like for us to encourage encourage us to really like sit in that and sit in the fact that we all have experienced it. Mm -hmm. And um, Nick is gonna take us more into um, this idea of mysticism and this idea of mysticism as a spiritual practice for anti-racism. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so there are a number of different aspects of mysticism that we're gonna be exploring over the next like seven gatherings. Um, but one of the things that makes uh, mysticism, Christian mysticism, because if you look in any religious tradition, there, there's, a mystic, there's a mystic thread in it. So all the different religious traditions has this, but what makes Christian mysticism um, markedly Christian is the tools that we use in order to set the stage for that personal encounter with God or the divine to happen. And so for Christians, like what, what that looks like is we would turn to prayer or the scriptures or meditation uh, as, as kind of tools to, again, set the environment. The end goal is not necessarily to have the personal encounter with the divine, because if that's our goal, chances are we won't get there. Uh, but really what it is, is we're committed to the journey. We're committed to the practice. And that opens the door for these very personal, very intimate encounters with the divine to happen. 
So um, one of the things that I've really appreciated about the, the Christian mystic tradition is the fact that it involves the whole self, uh, spirit, mind, and body. Uh, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a pretty fundamentalist Christian environment that definitely advocated for like the a distrust of the body. And a lot of the, uh, a lot of the religious stuff existed solely cognitively. And one of the ways that mysticism circumvents that or subverts that is that it, there's a recognition that there is an, in fact another path uh, that we can take uh, to access God. And, and that would be through the body um, or through the spirit. And it's not necessarily just a cognitive endeavor. So mysticism, it's, it's, it's actually an integrated endeavor involving the whole self. Uh, in Jesus's day, there wasn't actually a separation between the body and spirit. They were understood as two parts of an integrated whole. So unfortunately, though, like some Christian traditions teach that viewing the body as a vessel, a temporary holding place for the soul, while others teach uh, people to have a mistrust of the body like my own upbringing. Uh, the interesting thing about this line of thinking is that our bodies are, in fact, the only place where we can experience God. It all happens in here. So when we engage in prayer meditation, we can engage using movement, using breath, using our bodies and our senses. And by doing so, we actually restore the connection between our mind, our body, and our spirit. And we begin to understand ourselves more fully. Uh, Teresa Avila, a 16th century Spanish mystic, says that we must know ourselves to know God. Our journey inward to discover and locate ourselves will reveal our, our virtues and our, and our faults. Um, and when we locate ourselves and discover our virtues and faults, we develop humility. And when we develop humility, we are more able to allow God to be God instead of forcing God to be the God of our own making. So in that way, humility is the path towards growth. It's a path towards growth. And it's, it's necessary for the spiritual, both the spiritual and anti-racism journeys toward integration. Because humility will help us develop an understanding that we can't know everything. So it sends us on a path where we end up having more questions than answers and God is more expansive than we ever thought. Which to me is good news. It's good news to me too, Nick. It is good news of um, recognizing that um, it is God's desire for us to know ourselves. It is God's mm -hmm. desire for us to know ourselves so that we can know God fully. It is God's desire for us to know ourselves so that we can recognize how fearfully and wonderfully we've been made. And more importantly, I think how much we are loved how much we are absolutely loved and how much like that there is no one like Cecilia, like Nick or like anyone else on this call um, anywhere else in this world, right? There are people that we are similar to, but there is no one who is exactly like us because of God's love for us. And so um, that is a wonderful thing to me. Um, and so we want to think about ways in which we can exercise um, ways in which Jesus um, exercised mysticism. It is not only a um, quiet sit and meditation, um, quiet reflection kind of thing. It is bigger and beyond that. Um, Jesus was always interrupting the cultural norms of his time. Jesus was always interrupting um, power so that everyone could experience justice, 
so that everyone could experience equity. That was a part of what Jesus did. So we ask this question all the time, what would Jesus do, WWJD, for those um, 80s and 90s and 2000s people. Um, what Jesus did was interrupted the norm, interrupted the powerful. And I think what all, many of us have to sit with in modern times is the folks that Jesus was fighting against was us, that we have so gotten set and, and sedentary in our, um, our cultural norms that we have not, it is because it has made us comfortable, right? And so if we think about things that Jesus did, if we think about that, um, as Dr. King says, there was an arc to justice, right? And that we should be moving towards justice if we really believe in loving God. Um, that there's this arc that we should be doing that within ourselves as well, that it cannot sit in complacency and compliancy, that it must be about um, recognizing that there is a whole space for um, anyone to enter into beloved community and into God's kingdom. And so that does not often feel um, comfortable. It is, I don't know, I am, have become in adult life a gardener. I love watching and experience plants grow. And one of the things that um, as a teacher, I taught um, in science class is that even when they're, when horticulturalists, herbalists, um, farmers are getting their crops ready, when they're planting their seedlings, when they're in greenhouses, they give them, they agitate the seedling so that it develops um, acumen to be able to deal with the wind, to, deal, to be able to deal with um, extreme heat, to be able to deal with some cold, um, so that when it is planted in the ground, it is sturdy, that it has um, the ability to grow into its full form. And I think that that is what uh, our spiritual quest is, is for us not to want to be so comfortable, so um, normed that we are unwilling to be agitated into further growth. Mm -hmm. And so um, that is one of the things that we really want to explore um, and think about as we yep. um, push ourselves, some of us, to move more towards not only speaking and thinking, about a just world, but acting in a way that moves us towards a just world. Yeah, that's great, Cecilia. And, and one of the things that makes me think of is how important it is, again, for us to know ourselves in order to do this. Um, I know one of the things for me that's been really disorienting is as I've, uh, it's really like what we're doing is we're encouraging folks to engage in a worldview shift. And, and that, that requires a lot of work. And if, if we don't know ourselves as we engage in that worldview shift, it, it's going to be even more disorienting than it would be otherwise. Um, so one of the things that, that I've been thinking about when it comes to mysticism in particular is, is how deeply psychological it is and, and how the interior work leads to exterior uh, change. So, um, mysticism, you know, involves like an inward journey. And anytime we venture inward, we end up, we end up meeting a lot of parts of ourselves that we haven't looked at in a long time, if ever. And, and that can be very difficult. Um, but it's very important to do. Uh, Teresa of Avila, again, like she speaks about an interior castle, um, mm. which is a beautiful image of the inward journey towards union with God. 
And in that castle, she actually describes many serpents and devils that are especially in the outer rooms. Uh, and some of these serpents and devils that Teresa of Avila is describing were, were actually pieces of herself that her own ego had determined to be unwanted um, or uh, it was judged to be a negative thing. And so it went unexamined. And so as you continue to read of Teresa's like progression towards the innermost room of the interior castle, um, these unexamined pieces of herself actually became valued guests. And so it's important to ask like, okay, so why would she make that shift and what value is there in even doing this endeavor in the first place? So, um, so as we grow up and begin to individuate, like um, Carl Jung, he, he speaks about how we develop an ego. Uh, this ego serves a very important purpose, which is to help us navigate a world that can be unsafe. Um, so the ego, as we develop, finds that certain traits are beneficial for our survival. Uh, while other traits are not. And so those traits, they get cast aside into our unconscious. They don't just disappear, they're still there, but they're, they're in the wilderness of our unconscious. Eventually though, things happen in our lives that our egos aren't equipped to handle. And so we begin to notice the many contradictions within ourselves. Uh, this is where we bump up against the limits of our ego that's gotten us to this point in our life. So instead of tossing the ego aside, we simply, can begin to notice those parts of ourselves that have been hidden. And so we give those pieces of ourselves a place to be seen, to be heard, to be understood. And then we get to discover how to be in relationship with those newly discovered, those newly revealed parts of ourselves. And not only that, we get to discover how to help the ego and these newly discovered parts of ourselves to be in relationship with one another. And, and this effort actually brings about balance and harmony within ourselves. It's us actually getting to know ourselves which is tremendously helpful when we are, when we are uh, growing in our own spiritual journey, as well as when we are growing in our anti-racism journey, because it helps us discover our true selves. And because we are no longer suppressing certain aspects of who we are, and that's what white supremacy culture does, is it forces everybody to suppress certain pieces of who we are. And when we free ourselves from having to suppress that, it also frees our ego from its limited and confined position, which is beautiful. So um, Howard Thurman, and I'm almost done riffing. This is, I just love this stuff so much. So Howard Thurman, who is known as the mystic of the civil rights movement, he has a beautiful passage in his book, Meditations of the Heart, and it's called The Inward Sea. And I'm just going to read it for you. There is in every person an inward sea. And in that sea, there is an island. And on that island, there is an altar. And standing guard before that altar is the angel with the flaming sword. Nothing can get by that angel to be placed upon that altar unless it has the mark of your inner authority. Nothing passes the angel with the flaming sword to be placed upon your altar unless it be a part of the fluid area of your consent. This is your crucial link with the eternal. I love that. <laughs> um, so I just want to unpack it just real quick. Um, so as we, as we venture inward, we develop the ability to hold all parts of ourselves as we are able to be in relationship with ourselves. Um, we end up discovering who we are at our core. 
uh, we'll discover the values that we hold and those values offer purpose and intention that are deep, deep in our bones. We'll discover the things that bear the mark of our inner authority, which are the only things that are allowed on that altar that is on that island in the center of our inward sea. And when we discover this, we discover what makes us fully ourselves, what makes us fully human, which is our crucial link to the eternal. And so to say it like another way to get a little bit more practical with it, uh, we go through life making decisions, doing things that affects ourselves and others. Let's say we experience something that upsets us. And let's say that that thing that, obsess, that upset us caused us to react in a way that was protective. So we pushed someone away. This could be our ego. And this is good because it's helping us to make our way safely in the world. But we can go deeper. Maybe after the incident took place, we were able to look back at it and have the realization that maybe, just maybe, I responded in the way that I did, not because of what they did, but because of something that happened to me in the past. I responded out of something that happened to me in the past that this recent encounter brought to the surface again. And this is good, because now we're practicing self-observation. We're getting to know ourselves. But then there's a level deeper. As we unpack what happened to us in the past that caused the response that surfaced once again, maybe we can ask what that piece of us was trying to protect. Why did that piece of us, oh, sorry, why, why did that response emerge in the first place? Like what hurt was caused and what does that piece of us need in order to feel safe and protected? And once we know this, we can then offer loving kindness to that piece of ourselves, that piece that has protected us for so long over the course of our life. We can accept that part of ourselves as a vital piece to the whole that is me. And then we go a level yet even deeper. So as we become aware of and accept more pieces of ourselves, Howard Thurman says that it is like light begins to emerge over our inner landscape. We begin to feel more whole. And that it is here that we begin to discover what it is that we want. We discover what it is that we are for. Uh, as he says it, our inside stand. We discover our inside stand. It isn't about our gifts. It's, it's deeper than that. It's not about what others would say of us or what we would say that would please others. It's deeper than that. This is about you. This is about me. And so deep down, what kinds of things am I for? Thurman says that in this question is a reflection of the quality of your own meaning of life. And the answer to this question can only come from the altar of your area of consent. The answer to this question can only come from the altar that bears the mark of your inner authority. And your answer to this question is your connection to God, to the eternal. This is the divine spark that is within you. This is the mark of God that is within you. This is the good that is within you. And when we discover this, things start to happen. We become content with who we are and are content to work with what we've been given, imperfections and all. We are also able to sit with and hold tension for others because we've practiced doing this within ourselves. We're able to move through life with an inner clarity and inner force that is in sync with God's movement towards justice. Howard Thurman says it better than I ever could. Um, 
and this is what he says to answer that question. What are your for? What, what is your inside stand? He says, it is the will of the only God you can worship. Failure, success, achievement, lack of achievement, disorder, frustration. These things become surface things while underneath the churning tempest of our days is the steady rhythmic pulsing of the nerve center of our consent, which rhythm moves in cadence with the movement of the eternal. And there will come a time when the rhythm will bring order. And that is what we mean by prayer. And that prayer, that prayer is deeply intimate and it is deeply personal and it is our encounter with God, which is Christian mysticism. And that is a way that prayer can lead to a deeply personal, intimate encounter with the divine. Um, yeah, okay, so I'm done with things. Are you sure? Because it was good. I, yeah, <laughs> no, I, th I think that's it. But I mean, I, I just will say that like, this is the whole point of this series. We don't want to externalize it. It can't be just cognitive knowledge. We have to internalize it. Like if we're gonna be committed to anti-racism, if we're gonna be committed, uh, like we, we wanna be committed to our own spiritual journey, mm -hmm. like humility is required and we have to get to know ourselves. Cause when we know ourselves, that's when we come to know God. And we have to sit in the, in the tension of that, you all. Like mm -hmm. uh, we have to be willing. It is these things that are those white supremacy cultural standards that makes us feel like that we should never have things bad happen to us. It makes us have a very juvenile relationship with the divine. Well, if my life hasn't been perfect, then God must not exist. God must not be thinking about us, right? As opposed to sitting in this tension, sitting in the tension of that as we go deeper within ourselves, there are going to be times when we feel like God has moved away. God has not moved away. We're coming closer to God actually. And God as we should want to know God in a really intimate, intimate, personal way. And so even Jesus experienced tension. Even Je Jesus shared stories with us um, in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus said, please take this cup. I don't want to do this, right? Um, Jesus sat in tension for 40 days in a desert without food or water. I don't know. I like to eat and I enjoy drinking. And so I don't know. Um, maybe it's just me. Maybe I, we all think that Jesus was just like, oh, this is cool. I don't think so, right? And so how do we think that we should not have that as well? And so that is the sickness that is white supremacy cultural standards is that it fights against what can really help us to move into our deepest sense of self our deepest sense of self that we were given by the divine as a gift you know um how dare i not know me as greatly as i can know me when that is the gift that god has given me of me and so um this way in which um, the spirituality of anti-racism moves alongside, in parallel, um, enmeshed with mysticism, is this, when we interrupt these things that have kept us from ourselves, that have kept us from community, we can then start to move forward um, with courage. We can start to move forward with purpose. We can start to move forward with divine love for all humankind. And 
We haven't said this yet, Nick. We talked about it a lot when we were planning, but we haven't said it yet. Y'all, this is a journey. It is not an arriving point. Um, for the rest of the time that I have on this earth, I will be interrupting um, white supremacy cultural constructs because that is what I was raised in and socialized in as we all were. We will all be um, unpacking this baggage. We will all be um, unlearning, learning, and relearning that which we think is important that will move us towards equity and justice in our own humanity and our brother and sister in life's humanity. So um, we don't, we're not trying to be uh, condescending here when we're talking about um, tension and interruption and um, having the courage to jump. One of my spiritual, spiritual mentors says that for those who jump fully, there is no shiver right? Um, we're not trying to say it's an easy thing to do. It's a thing we were more equipped to do when we were five and we were jumping in the pool for the first time in the summer. We knew it was going to freeze us and we did it anyway because we knew if we did that, um, we could get over that coldness more quickly than just dipping our toe in and out of things, right? And so we're encouraging all of us to jump fully, to jump fully into our humanity so that we can um, be aware of our humanity and share in um, our neighbor's humanity as well. So as Nick talked about earlier, one of the things that we really are encouraging all of us to move towards um, is to recognizing that our spirituality is not only intellectual thought, that it is body, mind, spirit. And so one of the embodied practices that we have comes from, I don't know if you all can see this, this is a book called um, My Grandma's Hands and it's Racialized Trauma and the Pathways to Mending Our Hearts and Our Bodies by Resma Minikin. And it is wonderful. Um, I, we thoroughly encourage you, if you have not grabbed this, please do. Um, there are practices that help us to move away from the trauma that we've experienced. And this body practice, if you would like to just um, sit, be present, you can close your eyes, whatever you would like to do as I read um, this practice. And you can journal if you have something to write with. Um, it'll just take a few minutes. And we think that it will um, settle us into our, our next conversation with each other in our next learning in a couple of weeks, our next gathering very, very well. Find a quiet, private spot. Sit comfortably and take a few breaths. In through our noses, hold out with our mouths. In through our noses, hold out through our mouths. One last time. In through our noses, hold out through our mouths. Turn your head slowly and look around in all directions, especially behind you. Orient yourself in your surrounding space. If you're indoors, 
Notice the height of the ceiling, the height and color of each wall, any doors or windows, and any other details that stand out. Take note of any boundaries. Notice the sounds you hear. Notice the smells that fill the air, any warmth or coolness, and any colors that stand out. When you're done scanning your environment, face forward once again and return your attention to your body. Sense how your feet rest on the ground and how your butt rests on the seat. Now notice any other sensations in your body. The bend of your knees, your spine, straight or curved. And hold all of that within. Now bring your attention to the bottom of your feet. Sense the ground beneath them supporting you. Stay focused here for a few breaths. Move your attention to your back, to the sensation of a pressing lightly against the chair. Feel the chair supporting you, doing what it was designed to do. Now think of a person or a pet or a place that makes you feel safe and secure. Imagine you're with that person or pet or in that safe place. Let yourself experience that safety and security for a few seconds. Now check in with your body. Start with your shoulders. How do they feel? Relaxed or constricted? Closed? are open. What about your neck, your jaw, your major joints, your ankles, knees, hips, wrists, elbows, and shoulders, your back, your spine, your sphincter muscle, your toes. Stay with the experience of feeling safe and secure for a couple of breaths. Notice if anything arises or changes, such as a vibration, a sensation, an image, an emotion, an impulse, or a meaning. Now imagine the comforting person, pet, or place is gone. Instead, there's an angry stranger standing in front of you. The stranger's arms are crossed and he or she is glaring at you silently. You look into the stranger's eyes, hoping his or her expression will soften, but it remains unchanged. Check in with your body again. How do your shoulders feel? Your neck, your jaw, your back, your sphincter, your toes, your spine, Gently 
one by one, feel into all the places in your, your body where you sense constriction. Let your attention rest briefly in each one. Is it in your jaw? Is it in your neck? Is it in your eyes, your head, your spine, your back, your sphincter, your toes? Now, send the angry stranger away. Bring back the comforting person, place or pet. For several breaths, relax in the safety this presence provides. In through your nose, hold, out through your mouth. Breathe in your safety, hold, out through your mouth. Breathe in your safe place, Hold out through your mouth. Breathe in your safe person. Hold out through your mouth. Now gently move your attention through your body from your head to your toes one more time. Feel into each spot where you sense softness. Stay with each of these for one or two seconds. So we want to give everyone a chance to think about that embodied practice and to really feel um, what Nick has termed, and I, I really love this, clean pain and dirty pain, right? Because we need to understand that these tensions that we are used to trying to push away when it's not something that we like um, is a lesson for us often. Um, this dirty pain that we don't want to sit with is often what we need to sit with so that we can understand clean pain and that those are things that are a part of our lived experience as human beings. And that to be able to recognize those things are what we need to be able to recognize when something sits with us that we don't want to deal with, when we want to become defensive, when we want to have a right to comfort, when we want to have a way of either or thinking that if it's not my way then there's no other way that exists because if we're not comfortable with being able to recognize that that is something going on within us as opposed to what actually is then we will never be able to move forward in the ways that we need to um, if we are going to if we choose to commit to the spirituality of anti-racism